0: Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him It is written man shall not live by bread alone The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time said to him To you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give and I give it to whom I will If you then will worship me it will all be yours And Jesus answered him You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So in, a, in the flow of our Gospel, uh, Luke here, Jesus has just kind of metaphorically come down off the mountaintop. He's just had this amazing event that's gone on in his life in his baptism. He spent the 30 years of his childhood growing up there in Nazareth, likely being a carpenter with his father's trade, and has just kind of gone through life, learning, growing in wisdom and stature, as Luke tells us. And then finally we, he comes and meets John the Baptist at the River Jordan and he's baptized. And this is an incredible event, right? He goes down into the waters, uh, has an argument with John about whether John should do it or not. And John uh, says that Jesus points out that it's necessary to f- fulfill all righteousness that I do this. Puts Jesus down in the water and he, and he comes back up. And what happens? The Holy Spirit comes down in bodily form, lands on Jesus and a voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. Amazing turn of events for in the life of Jesus. Something amazing has just happened. And when you would normally write your, your storyline after this great powerful moment, what should you go to next? You've just got some collateral. It's like you talk about political collateral. Like when you've just been elected to office, you have, you have some collateral. You have political capital. It's not collateral. You have political capital. You've got something to invest, right? Because you've just got the vote of the people. You can get a lot of things done. Well, here Jesus has just kind of got a lot of capital. The voice from heaven has just come and said, You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is a lot of capital that he's gained. And what happens? Where does he go? Where would you think that he goes next? Well, he doesn't go where you might think he would go. (laughs) From this high event, we see Jesus entering into the wilderness. He's led there, yes, by the Holy Spirit and full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted for is, tempt, is fast for 40 days, and then is tempted at the end, or is tempted all the way along, or there's different commentators say different things about that, but for 40 days, he's in the wilderness, and Luke records for us three of his temptations. There is a ton of time we could spend here. I mean, we, could, we honestly could, could do like a six-week series on the temptations of Jesus. And, and people have done it, and there's lots of good books out there on the temptations of Jesus. I've got a few of them at home that I would loan out to you. If you want to research the temptations of Jesus more, there's a lot of good resources to look into. Our goal, however, this morning, I don't want us to get bogged down in Luke, right? We're on a mission here to to get through and to, to conquer, to, to preach through and to work through the gospel of Luke. So we don't want to get bogged down in all the details. We're trying to see as we do our run through the gospel of Luke, what are the main things Luke is trying to say to us? What, in his recounting of this story and what's, what's going on here, what is the main idea? What are the big ideas that are coming to us From this text, and that's what we're going to do this morning: is just look at some big picture ideas about this temptation of Jesus. What are we to understand from Christ wrestling with Satan in his tempting of him in the wilderness? And there's there's three big realities that I think jump out at us from the text. One big reality: there is an enemy. Uh, You know, we're going to see him a lot more as we get through the Gospel of Luke, but. Jesus is not just some exalted figure in in a world of a bunch of nice people. Uh, Jesus is this exalted son of God in a world and, and amongst people that have a real enemy. Satan really is here tempting Jesus. There is a real enemy. The second thing we'll look at is that Christ is real in his humanity in being able to suffer temptation. And thirdly, that Christ is victorious over these temptations. But the first thing is that there is an enemy. Jesus is led, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan, and is led by the Spirit in the wilderness. This is verse 1, verse 2. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil. There is an enemy. This enemy desires to de- destroy, and he has been at this work since the beginning. One of the most common avenues of, of, of attack that this enemy seems to employ, is working hard to convince us that there is no such thing as an enemy. If, 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 if the enemy can just sort of lull us to sleep, that there is no spiritual war going on, that there is no real battle going on in the supernatural realms, and that everything's just kind of this life, and things happen, and we don't always get it, and, but there's no real war going on, there is no real enemy that the enemy has won. And convincing us, this enemy, this Satan and his workers have won the battle in convincing us that he doesn't really even exist. But the scripture is clear, there is an enemy. And he is out to destroy God's people, to destroy the glory of God, to destroy God himself, were he able to do that, though we see from our scripture that's not going to happen. But this enemy is, it does exist he is real. We can be sure that there is an enemy of God and of our souls. 1 Peter five eight says that there's an adversary that roams around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. In the book of Job, we can see then the counsels of God. With God, we get a kind of look behind the scenes and there the enemy shows up. And is talking with God, trying to convince him to let him ruin Job and to, and to drag Job into hell with himself. There is an enemy. There really is an enemy. Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, we see this enemy goes before God and is trying to convince God of this person's uncleanliness, the, the filthiness of the priest's dirty clothes. There is an enemy. He is an accuser. He is a destroyer. And yes, beloved, my friends, he would love to destroy you. He would love to take your soul with him into eternal condemnation. There is an enemy. And the way he works, he's very crafty. And he's deceiving in his attempts at destruction. Though he is at his nature evil, he does not always appear so. He often masquerades, or he's been known to masquerade from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, as an angel of light. One that you would see and you would think, this one is beautiful. This is someone who I want to listen to. He's very crafty. He's very deceiving. And he is very much bent upon the destruction of God's people and the destruction of God's glory. We see him appear here to tempt Jesus with things that would possibly seem like legitimate desires. And at one point this angel of darkness, this enemy who masquerades as an angel of light, quotes scripture to Jesus. But there is a real enemy. There's a real enemy. Someone there is there is a force that doesn't want you to hear the gospel, that doesn't want you to believe in Jesus Christ this morning. There is an enemy that seeks to ruin you and to ruin God's glory. Second thing we see, the first is that there is an enemy. It's clear from the text. Second thing is that Christ and His humanity really suffered temptations. There's this heresy called docetism, that talked that has this idea that Jesus didn't have a real body, that he was God and he sort of masqueraded with this human kind of form, but he wasn't really man. And I've pressed hard on that if you've been here the past few weeks on the reality of Jesus being fully God and yet fully man, that he was both of these things, the hypostatic union. He wasn't part God, part man. He wasn't all God and, and no man just pretended, or he wasn't man who... Elevates Himself to Godhood. He's fully God and fully man. And what we see from these temptations is the real humanity of Jesus really being tempted. These are not pretend temptations. Somehow, and there's a lot of mystery involved in this, but somehow in Jesus clothing Himself with humanity, He is subjecting Himself very in a very real way to the temptations that we all face. Hebrews four fifteen tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are. Jesus tempted in every way as we are. So we don't read the temptations of Jesus and say, "Well, he's tempting God." That doesn't count. No, this is this. Jesus is something special. He's fully God and he is fully man. The temptations he's suffering are real temptations. Hebrews two eighteen tells us that Jesus truly suffered. Under his temptations. Jesus suffers temptations. We have a savior. We have a high priest who understands what it means to be tempted. He knows there's an enemy and he knows what it means to be tempted. He is not unfamiliar. And honestly, you know, you may think you, I know what it's like to be tempted. I've got tempted all the time to do things I shouldn't do. You probably, we probably in our humanity have no idea what it's like to be tempted in comparison to Jesus. You know why? He held out. <laughs> he held out. And you can talk about your temptations, but most of the time our temptations are, um, oh, I don't, you know, getting angry at someone and I, you know, someone's having a conversation with me and I, I feel the voice, I feel this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blow, I'm going to get mad at this person, I'm going to say something. No, I resist the temptation. And then they continue 30 more seconds in the conversation and the voice says, you know, they shouldn't talk to you like that. <laughs> And I blow, and I, and I, and I, and I give in. (laughs) My temptation took about 30 seconds. Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. He understands temptation, and I could argue he, he may even understand it better than you do. But looking quickly at these three temptations, I mean, there, there are three, we could, we could really dig into them. We're not going to this morning, but there's this, there's this basic temptation. Jesus in his flesh is understandably hungry, been fasting 40 days. And he's going to be hungry. And Satan comes along and tempts him to turn the stones into bread to use his divine power to satisfy his human felt need. The second one, he takes him, and these are, these are mixed up. In Matthew, they have them in the other order. But Luke is just kind of arranging the three that he knows of in his own order. Not necessarily in the order they happened. But the second one is this, uh, he, he, he tempts them to worship Satan for just a moment. Somehow he shows him the kingdoms of the world in the flash of an instant. He says, if you would just worship me, just, just take, take two seconds to bow down to me and I'll give you everything. And that's all it's going to cost you. And in the background is the, is the awareness Jesus is developing of his mission of suffering, his mission of service. And Satan is saying, you know what? You want to skip the suffering? You want to skip the service? Just bow down to me and I'll give it all to you. This is the second temptation of Jesus to, to worship Satan for just a moment to receive the world's kingdoms. And the third, he takes him to this pinnacle and, and, and quotes scripture to him. Cast yourself down. And uh, it's, it's, it's uh, tempting Christ to, to really prove and have this evidence for himself, for the world, that he, in fact, is the Son of God because God has commanded that these, saw these, these scriptures that Satan uses against him that he would jump off of this pinnacle and be caught, be swept up and be kept safe and would be able to prove his divine authority and his, his uh, temptations. Just a few quick pragmatic ta- takeaways from these temptations. In all of these temptations, Satan comes and he says, if you are, if you are the son of God. And these temptations are based upon this idea of identity. God has just declared from the heavens. Okay? None of us have been, this is what God has done. He has spoken from the heavens. This is my son. You are my son with whom I am well pleased. And Satan comes along and he says, uh, if you really, he begins to question his identity. Is this who you really are? How central is your Christian identity? How central to your life is your Christian identity? One of the ways that we fight temptation is this understanding of who we are in our union with Christ and what we have in our benefits, how we have inherited every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 tells us that these blessings, this Christian identity, knowing who you are in Christ and all that is yours in Christ, these are, that's one of the main areas Satan attacks Jesus on and we also see the temptation for Jesus to obtain his crown without the cross that Jesus would skip his service and skip his suffering to to reign to 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 get to go through this life and receive his comfort and receive his peace without his cross if the master suffered in this way we can be sure that we will be as well. Got to move on. So we've got these clear realities. There is an enemy. You have an enemy. Jesus shows up, goes in the wilderness, and he is truly tempted. And the third reality we have is Christ clearly was victorious over this enemy. Christ was on a mission that he was not to be diverted from. When Christ walks away from this encounter with Satan, he walks away as the victor. Satan walks. Satan kind of puts his tail between his legs and walks off and says, "I'll be back. I'll be back. I'm going to try again." But it's clear that as he walks away, Christ has walked out of this as the victor. And this is so important for us to know in the life of Jesus. He's not some person of equal power. This is not dualism. Christianity doesn't have a dualism. God and Satan are duking it out, and boy, we'll see who figures, see who comes out on top. Christianity has no dualism. God is God above all. Jesus Christ is God above all. And when Satan shows up, guess who walks away winning? Jesus does. You've got an enemy. We all have an enemy. Guess who is victorious over that enemy? Jesus Christ is every time. Jesus Christ is the victor. He is not competing against Satan in some sort of equal strength and battle. He is someone far superior. From day one of his ministry, here in his temptations, Christ beats the enemy. And we see in the last day, in his resurrection from the death, his resurrection from the dead, Christ's victor over the enemy. So those are my three big realities. We have an enemy. We have an enemy. Christ's temptation was real, and Christ is victorious. Consequences from these big realities. We have an enemy. Satan is not satisfied to go to hell alone. Hell has been created for the devil and his angels, but he is not satisfied to go there alone. He wants to drag as many there with him as he can. And don't for a second forget there is a very real battle going on in this life. Ephesians 6.12 tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and rulers of this present darkness over this present evil age. There's a real battle going on. It's, it's, and it's tempting to look at our world, and we can see that there is a real flesh and blood battle going on. There are real consequences, things happening in our world, in our modern culture and government even. There's a real war going on. But do not be deceived for a second Christian... That is not the real battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. There is a bigger enemy. There is a bigger enemy than any nation you can lay out there. It is the kingdom of darkness itself. And what it wants to do is take as many people to hell with it and to tarnish and tear down the glory of God. There is an enemy of your soul and he is diligently, diligently at work to destroy you. And if he cannot destroy you, he desires to steal as much glory from God as he can. You cannot trust every idea that comes into your head. You cannot trust every word of advice that comes your way. You cannot trust every impulse without reservation. This enemy is a deceiver. And he works by convincing you, not always in outright open rebellion against God, but often by working to convince you that the thing that will destroy you or steal glory from God is the thing you really need, the thing you really want. He's a deceiver. Awareness that he is out there and that he is working hard to appeal to your fleshly desires, to your worldly reason and logic. He is working hard to deceive you, to steal, to, to take you with him and to steal glory from God. And not only to you as an individual, so i kind of been speaking to you. You have an enemy. This body has an enemy. This church, this local church has an enemy. There is an enemy who does not want this church to proclaim the gospel. This enemy would be glad for us all to gather and shake hands and be nice and have a good social club. The, the, devil would, the enemy would give his stamp of approval on a group like that. The enemy does not, we have an enemy against a body of people coming together in a stance for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who our Savior is. This is who God is, holy and righteous. This is who Christ is. This is what He has done. There is an enemy Against that. He he may not be an enemy by convincing churches to become outright temples of Satan, but by slowly deceiving them and persuading them that really what they desire, what their culture wants, that that is what what is best. So we have an enemy. First consequence from the reality that we have it. There is an enemy. We have one as well. The second thing from seeing our Savior going into temptation, we likewise will encounter temptation. The servants are not greater than the master. He suffered under temptation. We will suffer too. Usually, likely, we won't require the presence of Satan himself to tempt us. <laughs> We've got plenty of, of ammunition in our flesh quite sufficiently to, to lure us, to lure us, and, you know, uh, coming up with the excuse, you know, the, the devil made me do it. me, I may say that I worked with a lady uh, back in the day who would just, she'd, that's what she would goof to say all the time. She'd say, ah, the devil made me do it. It's like, no, you just kind of wanted to do that yourself. The devil didn't need to get involved here. You just wanted to do it. You thought it was the right thing for you. You did it and it was wrong. Don't blame the devil on this. It's just you. But yes, yes, it's, it's when there is an enemy, but sometimes all it requires is a simple tap on your shoulder and saying, yeah, this, this is, this is kind of the way that I want to go. On that note, We've got to notice how Jesus responds to his temptations. How did he respond? Every time the Satan comes to him and tempts him with this reality, what does Jesus do? He quotes his Bible to him. Goes to Deuteronomy, which would have been a very popular book, the, the second telling of the law. He goes to Deuteronomy and he quotes his Bible to Jesus. He, re, he responds to his temptation with the revealed word of God. Friends, there is one safeguard against temptation. It is knowing your Bible. It's knowing your Bible. You personally, in your fight against temptation to sin, need to have authoritative words to live by and to know what is right. We as a church... And our fight against a culture that is obsessed with plotting its own course, need to have and to know what God has revealed for Himself. It's why we have taken the months to read just through the book of Romans, let the Bible speak. It's why I'm pleading with us, memorize your Bible, get to know large portions of it, get to know this book. This is the special revelation of God to us that we can know Him. If Jesus quotes Scripture to fight off His temptation... How much more should we know this book to ward off the the, the works and the effects of the enemy? And lastly, where, where we try and fail, where the last thing was, the last, last observation was that Christ is the victor. The third working out from that is where we try and fail, Christ entered into and he succeeded. We've all given in to temptation time and time again, and I don't bring this up to give you permission to sin by any means or don't worry about it, but there's some interesting things. There's some foreshadowing going on here. The children of Israel, when they get led out of of Exodus, uh, the Red Sea, and they go into the wilderness, they spend 40 years wandering around in the wilderness grumbling and complaining against their God. And that's a foreshadowing in a very real way of Jesus who shows up. Israel sometimes called the Bible, the Son of God. Children of God, Israel, the nation of Israel. And here we have in the wilderness, both wildernesses, we have in the wilderness the Son of God showing up and He's a better Son of God than the children of Israel. They fail, they grumble, they complain, they moan. Jesus doesn't. Jesus doesn't. He resists temptation. And The other foreshadowing is the event of the Garden of Eden itself. There, Adam and Eve in paradise. With all the food and the things they could desire to have except this one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they are tempted and they fail. In paradise, they are tempted to eat and they fail. And our Savior, Jesus, a better Adam, the new Adam, not in paradise but in a wilderness fasting for 40 days, is tempted to eat and what does he do? He succeeds. He resists temptation. Christ lives the righteous life that the Son of God, Adam, did not do, the first Adam did not do, the children of Israel did not do, and let's be honest, none of us have done. Jesus shows up as the better Adam, the better Son of God, enters into temptation just like ours and even worse. And what does He do? He succeeds. He fulfills all righteousness. This is part of the active obedience of Christ. I visited a couple times this past week with a guy who's on his deathbed or in, it's his death chair basically. He's sitting around he's, he's entering his last days and he knows it. And so I've gone and visiting and had some conversations and talking about the state of his eternity. He can't make many plans for this life, but as long as you're here, there's, there's always time to make plans for the next one. So we're, we're talking about what's going on. And he confessed that there probably wasn't enough time to make up all the ground that he needed to cover to make things right with God. It's like I don't know if I got enough time to, to, to make up all the ground I've got to cover. And you know what? He was right. There wasn't there's not enough time. There's not enough time for him to make up all the ground that he, you know, in his sinful past life. There's not enough time for him to make up ground. You know what else is true? There's not enough time for you either. I don't care I don't care how young you are, how many years you've got left, there's not enough time left for you to make up good ground to get to to get on good side, to get in God's favor. There isn't enough time for any of us. But as I told him and as I say to us and say to you this morning, the good news is not a declaration of what you need to do or what you can do to be reconciled to God. It is a declaration of what God has done to reconcile us to himself. Yes, you failed. Yes, in your temptation, you've given in. We have a Savior, though, who did it. I say it over and over again. Christ is. Entered into the world. He lived the righteous life we should have lived. Died the death that we deserve so that through repentance and faith and His work we can be forgiven of our sin and given His righteousness. Put in right standing with God. Reconciled back to God Himself. Christ didn't fail. And there is forgiveness in His name. Where we fall short, Christ failed. And your only hope is not trying to get into the garden or get in the wilderness and get your fasting going and and not fail the temptation. You've already failed. It's too late. Your only hope is confessing, repenting, and trusting in the work of this Savior who did not fail. Did not fail in faith in His work. What do the temptations of Jesus say to us? They say we have a victorious Savior. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer and to be severely tempted. And we have a Savior who who has overcome. He's calling to each of us this morning to repent, confess our sinful failings, and to trust in his sufficient life and death. Our God is not a weak God. Our God has not lost control. Our God is accomplishing his purposes for the good of his children and for his glory. And in this hope, we rest and we rejoice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. For the good news of the gospel that we have a Savior who is victorious came to life and when tempted beyond really even our comprehension He does not give in He lives the righteous life we should have lived God we thank you for it pray that you would right now in this moment work faith in our hearts be it for the first time or for time again and again faith in our hearts in the hope of this gospel a Savior who forgives sin and gives his righteousness, that we can be in right standing with you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.